The scripture reading today is taken from 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 24. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And as you're seated, again, let me introduce myself. Uh, I'm Brant, one of the pastors here at Christ City Church, and it really is my joy to to welcome you here. Um, As we come to the word of God, I want to ask that you would bow your head and pray with me because we need God's help. We can't understand or be shaped by or change in ways that really matter for the course of our lives apart from the Holy Spirit taking this word and and working it into our hearts and changing us through it. So let's ask for that this morning together. Gracious Father, we come to you and we come in the confidence of knowing that you love us. What an incredible thing. The God of the universe, you love us. Lord, I I pray that you would open our hearts to know and to believe and to trust your love for us. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word, that we'd see the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and all the hope and all the promise and all the joy that those words mean. Lord, I pray that we'd know them much more than just as ideas, but as a reality that shapes us that is bringing life into a world of death. God, we just ask for those that are suffering right now and those that have just enormous burdens on their shoulders. I I pray for them in particular, Lord, that you would encourage them with the word of your resurrection. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to begin our look at this text with a different text. We're going to go back to one of the Gospels, the first Gospel. The Gospels are just the stories of Jesus' life and ministry on earth. The Gospel of Mark, where where Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 36, these words. He said, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, if anyone would be my disciple, well then, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It's an interesting text. It's a challenging passage. And it reminds us, I think, of the truth that that you will never see a U-Haul trailer behind a hearse. Never see a U-Haul trailer behind a hearse because you can't take it with you. See, Jesus, when he speaks this word, he knows the reality that death is coming for each human being. And he knows that after death comes judgment, he knows that it's possible to live our human lives in such a way that we pursue all of our dreams. That we live our lives and we take hold of all that we can for ourselves and that it feels like we're winning for a little while. And still at the end of the day, after having achieved everything, even the whole world, we lose. 
and still lose our soul in Jesus' words. See, Jesus knows this, and, and in knowing it, he doesn't tell the crowds who followed him, hey, my word of wisdom for you is live your, li- live your best life now. He doesn't say, follow your heart. He doesn't say, do what makes you happy. Instead, he says, take up your cross and follow me. He says, give me your life. Give your life for the sake of me and for the gospel. And you will live. You will live. Let's be really honest. Jesus' ask is a big ask. To become a a disciple of Jesus is a big deal according to the Bible. So big a deal, in fact, that Paul said in the previous passage we looked at last week, that unless the resurrection of Jesus is real, no one in their right mind should follow Jesus. You shouldn't do it unless the resurrection is real. But this morning, we're on the the flip side of the coin from last week, and Paul's going to declare to us that Jesus has, in fact, been raised. And if he's been raised, then actually these words we see in Mark have never been a greater offer ever given for a human being than this. You can't find a better offer than this. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and receive imperishable, unquenchable life through Jesus who declared in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So this morning, we're going to look at the words that Megan read for us already, and we're going to understand and and try to understand and try to comprehend what Paul describes there, this incredible power and glory that are in Jesus' resurrection. We're going to look and begin to unpack what he's accomplished by the resurrection that began so long ago, that happened so long ago. And as we do, I'm praying that a few things would happen to each of us in our own hearts. I'm praying that we grow to be willing to deny ourselves, take up our crosses, because Jesus offers us life that is truly life. So we'll look at three points, three points that are all going to be about the the increasing abundance and generosity of the life that is in Jesus. Point number one, Jesus, the first fruits. Point number two, we'll look at Jesus, the second Adam. And point number three, we'll look at Jesus, the conqueror. I want you to read 1 Corinthians 15, 20 with me and consider our first point, Jesus, the first fruits, as we unpack all the realities of his resurrection life. Paul says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. But in fact, Christ city, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Notice Paul's confidence. It's really important we see that Paul didn't say, but in my opinion, but I've been, I've been thinking, I've been wondering. 
He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Why is Paul so confident about that? I mean, he's talked in the previous verses about all the ways that the Christian faith that we have, it all falls apart if there's no resurrection. Then he, he interjects and says, but in fact, he has been raised. There's reason for hope. Why is he so confident? Well, I think on the first hand, because Paul's already talked about in the earlier verses, at the beginning of the chapter, about all the people in all the ways that Jesus Christ once raised, how he went and he appeared to them. And he's, he knows these people. Paul lived a life that was contemporaneous with the time of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. And he knows that Jesus appeared to, to real people, not as a phantom, but as a resurrected corporeal person. And he appeared to normal people. People, by the way, who saw Jesus together. That's important, right? Because we've all, I mean, maybe we all haven't. I was going to say we all hallucinate, but maybe we don't all hallucinate. Uh, we know, we all know, we all know that, that you can have a hallucination or a dream that's compelling by yourself, right? And if it was just one person, one dream, then maybe we'd like, okay, we, we, we can doubt that. But no, this Jesus, this corporeal, resurrected Jesus appeared to people at the same time. The 12 disciples at the same time. Paul says, and to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time a little later. Right? And they're like, hey, can you pinch me a second? Are you seeing what I'm seeing? Because I think that's Jesus and he's talking to me and he looks real. Right? Unless they're having the same hallucination at the same time. That, that means something. Jesus appeared to normal people who saw Jesus together, some of whom even placed their hands on the scars in his side where the spear went in. And in the wounds on his hands and his feet. And many of whom, not that long afterward, were willing even to die because they'd seen the resurrected Lord and Savior Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I'm not willing to die for a lie. I don't think they would have been either. I think Paul's confident because of the ways the resurrected Christ has appeared and, and he's like, look, you can go and chat with these people. They still are around. <laughs> Second, I think Paul's confident because Jesus appeared later to him on the Damascus Road. We've read about that. We read about that a couple weeks ago. The way that Jesus appeared to Paul and commissioned him and gave him the mission that he had to, to plant churches in the Gentile world. And third, I think Paul's confident that Jesus has been raised because Paul had the privilege of seeing the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit at work in this world. Paul witnessed something radical change because Jesus was raised. He saw the church begin. He saw people who were formerly slaves of sin and left and just the corruption and the the sorrow of their early first century existence saved out of that reality and radically changed. So much so that within a couple of hundred years, Christianity had taken the Roman world by storm. It expanded and filled up that ancient world and changed it forever. I think Paul's confident for all of those reasons, but I think that leads to an important point for us. Because sometimes I think when we look at the text of Scripture, we might feel like we have less reason to be confident 
than Paul did. But Christ City, I think it's the opposite. I don't think we have less reason and less evidence to be confident in the resurrection, but more. You know why that is? Because we live now 2,000 years after the events. That's 2,000 years where if Jesus was truly raised, his Holy Spirit has been working. Where more and more and more and more people have had their lives changed by the power of Jesus. Paul had a handful of those people in his life. We have two millennia of that working. I don't know if you realize this, but historically it's indisputable that something changed in the history of humankind around the time of Jesus Christ. That change and that ethical shift that took place as Christianity took that Roman world by storm had never happened before in the history of humankind. And somehow you have to account for the ways that, that this Roman world with its ethic were right, uh, where might makes right. Where it was okay if you were a citizen of Rome and had power to oppress whomever you wanted. You treated people as objects to be used for your pleasure. You did what you wanted towards the poor and the suffering. You ignored others and everybody thought that was okay. But very quickly, that changed. What could account for that radical change where now even emperors, not that long later, emperors like Theodosius in the 4th century would begin to, to start to embrace the ethic of a Christ-likeness, a self-giving and sacrificial love. What can account for that change in this world? I think only the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Crazy, this change has been going on even to today. There's, there's realities even now in this church and in this world of millions and millions of people who are encountering the resurrected Lord still through his spirit and their lives are changed. How many of you enjoy the baptism testimonies we put out uh, every time we do baptisms? I mean, I love them. But they're right in line with the evidence that I'm talking about because people are still being radically changed in ways, by the way, that people just aren't usually changed in our world. I once was all these things. Now I'm these things. I'm radically changed. People don't recognize me anymore. <laughs> what, what happened? The Holy Spirit of the resurrected Jesus is changing lives, even today and even in this church. I think that means that we don't have less reason to believe and less reason to be confident than Paul, but perhaps more. The only adequate explanation, I think, for all of these things is what Paul says in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Praise God. He has been raised. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. It's a very interesting and appropriate word that that, that Paul uses for what we've been talking about. First fruits. You know what first fruits are? In the Old Testament, in the Bible, the first fruits were the way that the people of Israel, they would uh, take the first part of their harvest they received and they would bring it and they would offer it to God as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. God, thank you so much for the way you supplied for the needs of my family. You know, here's this harvest that I know is coming, but it was the first part. It was just the first grains of that harvest. So it wasn't just Thanksgiving, it was actually also an anticipation. I'm taking what I've got first, but I'm offering it in anticipation of the full abundance of the harvest that you will bless me with. 
See, first fruits are the beginning in time, but they're representative of all the rest that will come afterward. Jesus Christ is the first born the the first fruits of the resurrection. I think about first fruits in our own neighborhood in Kitsilano a lot uh, every time we're in January or we're in February, which we are right now. Because first fruits are easy to think about when you see that first snowdrop pushing up out of the ground. Snowdrop's a kind of a flower. It's the very first flower that you tend to see in Vancouver in January or in early February. Uh, yesterday I was on a walk or Friday I was on a walk with Pepper, my daughter Pepper. I named my daughter a condiment, by the way, if you didn't know. Um, and, uh, and, and we, we, uh, we were walking out in Kitsilano and we were looking at the neighborhood and I was pointing out to her, cause I'm a bit of a flower nerd, all the different flowers, look, look, this is for Scythia, it's blooming already. You know, here's some tulips, uh, here's some crocuses. Look, Pepper, there's a crocus right there on the ground. A crocus is a bulb flower, if you don't know. And, uh, and I was showing her these things, but, but even still, the flowers that I'm beginning to see, which are so encouraging, they're just the first fruits of the flowers that are coming. Christ City, pretty soon... It's going to be like a drunken Valentine's party on the streets of Vancouver. As all the, the cherry blossoms, right, and all the double flowering plums just explode over everything and cover the world in pink. It's going to be nuts, right? But, but the first fruits that anticipate all of that are the snowdrops. And when you see them, you can be certain that the rest will follow afterward. See, Jesus has been raised as the first fruits, because it's just the first resurrection. It's just the beginning of the life that is coming. There's an author, an English author by the name of C.S. Lewis, and he once said, a man really ought to say the resurrection happened 2,000 years ago in the same spirit in which he says, I saw a crocus yesterday. Crocus, remember? Flowering, bulb plant. Because we know what is coming behind the crocus. Because we know that a lot more is coming. We know that the spring of eternal life has sprung and we wait with confidence for the full heat of the summer. I think it's a beautiful idea, this reality of, of first fruits, and, and certainly it symbolizes what's, what's happened first and all that will come at the end. But it's not like, it's not like you see those first snowdrops, right? And then nothing happens for six months. And then on a single day, the full flower of the summer shows up, right? So when the first fruits come, that life has begun. And it's gradually increasing and filling this world until the time of its fullness. And I think it's the same way with Jesus' resurrection. We won't yet physically be raised until he returns, but his life, which is part of his resurrection reality, is at work in us right now. We see that actually in chapter 8 in Romans in verse 23 because Paul talks about the first fruits of the life of Jesus in terms of the first fruits of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Look at what it says. Paul says, But we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So the redemption of our bodies, he's talking about the resurrection life that's to come. The first fruits of the Spirit, he's talking about that reality of that first part of life that is working within us right now. See, the first fruits of the Spirit are, is the Holy Spirit who Paul wrote about a few verses earlier in Romans 8, verse 10. Look at that verse as well. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life 
because of righteousness. Christ City, if you've trusted in Jesus, the resurrection has already started in you. Do you know that? Why? Because Paul says, if you trust in Jesus, then Christ is in you. Because the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit of the resurrected Lord and Savior is breathing life into you today. Life has begun. And it's blossoming and it's increasing and it's continuing. You know this. If you've, if you've been someone who's trusted in Jesus, then you know the, the results and, and the reality of his powerful life filling you. Because every time that you grow in the fruit of the Holy Spirit, in love, in joy, in peace, in patience, in goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, it's the evidence that the Holy Spirit of the resurrected Christ is at work in you. As you grow to, to hate sin, that sin that you used to love and hang on to and want to pursue, and you're like, I don't want that anymore. I'm realizing how wrong and awful and life-destroying it is. Now I want the righteousness of Jesus. I want to follow him in obedience. As that happens in you, it's because the Holy Spirit of the life of Jesus is at work in you and the power of his resurrection. As you hunger and thirst for him, and you start to say with the psalmist in Psalm 63, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. It's evidence of that Holy Spirit of the resurrected Christ, Jesus, who is in you, is working and shaping you and filling you with life. See, first fruits of the resurrection in Jesus Christ are a promise of all that is coming. That we all will be physically raised with him one day. That between now and then, his spirit is at work in us, filling us with life. And all this increasing life has begun for one reason. As Paul said in verse 20, because Jesus has in fact been raised. And if Jesus' life is at work in us now, we can be certain that it will continue until it has completely pushed back all the sin and the death that is here in the first place as a consequence of Adam's sin. Why don't you look at our second point then, Jesus, the second Adam, in verses 21 to 26. Paul writes, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Christ City, what is death? Is it just this unavoidable reality that just happens to be there and we got to live with it? Or is it a great evil? that must be conquered. See, one thing that I find compelling about how the Bible speaks about death is it speaks about death in a way that I think as human beings, we all know intuitively to be true. Death is not just a part of life. No, the Bible says death is here as a consequence of sin. And one day, the life of Jesus Christ will, will conquer even death. 
See, when Paul writes in verse 21, for as by a man came death, he's writing about death as a tragedy. So the biblical story opens with a tragedy. The biblical story opens with with Adam and Eve in relationship with God in a garden. God who is life, God who is love, God who is good, and Adam and Eve walking with God in the cool of the day, knowing the fullness of his abundant and flourishing life. But then what happens? Adam turns away from God. He rebels against God, and as a consequence, his relationship with God, the life giver, is broken, and he and Eve are cast out of the garden. They're cast out from the presence of life. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 24. It says, God drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and churned every way to guard the tree, to guard the way to the tree of life. So the, the biblical story begins with, with Adam and Eve who had this incredible life with God, but then because of their sin are separated from the life that they had with God. Their sin separated them from him. Their sin brought corruption and decay into this world. And their sin was such that now we all also, their descendants, are separated from God, naturally speaking. So the DNA of sin that was in our first parents is in us. As a consequence of all that sin, we reap death. A physical death, because there's no eternal life outside of relationship with God. And a spiritual death, because like our first parents, we too distrust God's loving and good commands for us and turn away from him. And this death is all-encompassing. As in Adam, all die. This death is pervasive. It affects us. It affects the whole universe that we live in. Scientifically, we have a word for this, by the way. We call it entropy. Right? Where what's going on in this, this world that we live in is that every second that we're on this globe, we're careening together with the whole created universe towards an inevitable death. See, every building of a city, every doing of good, every action in our lives requires energy. But one day that energy will be exhausted, so the scientific description, a description of entropy goes. Right? No matter what is done now, the inevitability of that cold, dissipated universe tending towards death will happen. Who can stop it? You know who can stop that death? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, when God raised Jesus from the dead, he demonstrated once and for all his commitment to this universe that he had made. His commitment that he would not leave this world to hurl towards death inevitably, but he would stop it. Look again at what Paul says in verses 21 to 22. For as by a man came death, right, this ubiquitous everywhere pervasive death by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead for as in adam all die paul writes so also in christ shall all be made alive you see in the early 30s a.d early one sunday morning something happened entropy was arrested 
entropy was arrested in the physical body of Jesus. And all the physical forces at work in that cold, dead body, moving it and the universe that it was a part of towards decay, stopped and reversed. And Jesus took his second first breath. See, the great machinery of the universe spinning towards death came to a full stop and began working the other direction when God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So let me ask you, what do you think the most powerful act of God has been in human history? I don't think it was the creation. I think it was the resurrection of Jesus From the dead, when God showed, I'm committed to not letting this thing hurtle towards destruction, but I will grab hold of it and I will bring it back towards life. Paul speaks about this incalculable power of God in raising Jesus from the dead in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. So I think I have biblical warrant to say that Jesus' resurrection is the most powerful work of God. Uh, Here's what Paul says there. He calls the power of God raising Jesus from the dead the immeasurable greatness of his power. The immeasurable greatness of God's power is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And then Paul says that power is toward us who believe. It's for us. <laughs> according, to the great, according to the working of his great might, not a little bit of God's strength, but the greatness of his might, which he exercised in raising him from the dead, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. It's the great power of God is the power of God that reverses death and brings a life through the second Adam, Jesus Christ. As in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. Christ City, what good news. The good news of the gospel is the good news of life. It's good news of life that is not theoretical, but is real, miraculous, and truly makes a difference. And incredibly, Paul says that this power in this life is for those who belong to Jesus. Look at verses 22 to 23. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So who will experience the the fullness of this resurrection life and be raised physically with Jesus? You see what it says? Those who belong to Jesus. It's important to note that. Because the gift of life that Jesus offers, it's not for everybody. It's exclusive. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus wants you to have it. (laughs) He wants you to belong to him. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is a savior who loves to save you. His desire is that we would come to him to trust what he has done so that he will take us as his own to belong to him forever. So I don't know where you're at this morning or where you're, you're feeling in your own personal life or how much of a mess you might feel like or how much you feel like you might not need this, but you need to realize that, that Jesus loves to save messy and broken and difficult people like you and me. <laughs> he does. 
See, salvation, this life that he offers and he's working, is by his grace. That means that this gift of life is given. It's a gift. It's not given to those that deserve it or have earned it. No, it's a blessing that's distributed to those that simply come and fall on their faces before Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm sick of trying to belong to myself. I want to give all that up. I want to belong to you. I want to get off of my earthly throne that I built for myself and my desire to control my life my way, and I want to follow you. Would you save me? And the good news of the gospel is Jesus says, yes. All who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. And there's good news because that promise of belonging to Jesus is so comforting. Because if you belong to Jesus, Jesus zealously protects you. The life that he's begun in you, he will continue and perfect until it's completed. He will not allow Satan or sin or death or even your own stupidity to get in the way of the life that he has begun in you. He guards and protects his own. You don't need to be afraid as you walk through the realities of this world because you belong to Jesus Christ. You can say with the psalmist in Psalm 27, 1, words that have been such an encouragement to me this week, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You belong to the resurrected King of kings and Lord of all. So we've seen Jesus is the first fruits of those raised from the dead. We've seen that he's a second Adam through whom God is bringing life to all who belong to him. But there's more because to belong to Jesus is to belong to the resurrected King of kings and Lord of lords. And that means rule. That means dominion. I want you to look at our last point. Jesus, the conqueror in verses 23 to 24. So Paul writes, he says, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the father, after destroying every rule and authority and power. See, Paul is describing the order of the life of Jesus and how it actually works. First, Jesus is raised, right? Then when he comes, all those who trust in him and belong to him, then they'll be raised. But then there's this other point. Then the end comes after that. It's an end that he describes with these words. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. See, the end isn't the end as in there's nothing that comes after it. The end is the beginning. The end is the beginning of a, of a new reality where sin and Satan and death and suffering are gone forever. And Jesus reigns completely over all. The end might as well be the beginning of the rest of eternity. Right? There's a short period of time in human history here. And then there's all of eternity that comes after that. The end when Christ rules and reigns. See, Paul describes the end as the complete complete victory of Jesus. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Significantly, I think we can add 
that is against him, that is opposed to him. See, it's so important for us to recognize that the Bible teaches that death is the result of rebellion against God. That's what the Bible teaches. And the Bible teaches that life in its fullness, when the end comes, is the result of Jesus' victory over every rebellion. Death is the result of rebellion, but one day Jesus will be victorious over all. See, it's our own rebellion against God that, that fills this world with death and with suffering. I mean, you experience this, right? When, when people live opposed to God and his good commands in your own life, when they do that around you and towards you, it hurts you. It causes incredible suffering and sorrow in this world when, when people treat one another in ways that God would not have us treat one another. But then when you do the same thing towards others, it, it carries on the same, right? This death and the suffering continue. But then we've also looked at the way that when Adam and Eve sinned, they were also separated from God and brought consequences of death into this world so that even the chaos of this world and things like horrific earthquakes are the result of, of, of a sin that's at work in this world corrupting it. And one day all of that will be stopped. See, rebellion against God always brings death. But one day soon, Jesus will deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. You know, I think that it's probably true that sometimes we think far too little of God's love. We think of God's love like nice sentiment, not as a zealous protective love that it is. See, God has created you and I and he's created this world and he loves us. And he loves this world. And just like you wouldn't allow your loved ones to be endlessly hurt, there will come a day when, when God says, because I love my creation, I will finally judge rebellion. Enough will be enough. See, God is too good a God to let our creation destroying rebellion continue forever, so he will destroy rebellion. See, the end in verse 24 is, is truly a happy ending. A happy ending like good old-fashioned storytellers where there is a defined evil that is named and that is done away with. The problem is that we think we're the good guys in the story and we're not. See, on our own, the Bible describes us as the ones who've rebelled against God. Naturally, we're his enemies. But God is a God of mercy. And in his kindness, what he desires for his enemies, and the reason he delays in bringing the end today, is that he wants us to repent. He wants his enemies to take refuge in Jesus Christ and to be saved. He wants them to belong to him, no longer as enemies, but as beloved and precious children, heirs of eternal life. There's a beautiful psalm that talks about this. It's Psalm 2 in the Bible, and it speaks with words that, that are about King David, but I think are most true about Jesus Christ, the Messiah who came and the psalm says this, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. 
Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord, that's God, with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, that's Jesus, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in King Jesus. See, Christ City, the good news of the gospel is the good news of the resurrection. The good news of the gospel that we share with people is never complete unless we share the good news of life. See, resurrection is grace. Resurrection is gift. Resurrection is the superabundance of God's unquenchable and unstoppable life reshaping this world and that he offers to us. See, God loves you and I and he gives to all who come to him the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. Starting now that we've talked about by the power of his spirit changing us, causing us to joyfully love him and obey him, and then ending one day when we are raised together physically from death when he returns. And knowing that, knowing that reality of the the good news of the gospel of life, that ought to change everything in our lives. It means that that every moment of Mark chapter 8 that we looked at, every moment of carrying the cross of Jesus, every moment of denying ourselves and following Jesus is worth it. Every moment is productive, that that these actions of following Jesus now are participating in his life, a life that reverberates through the universe until the day that it fills all in all. It means not that your faith is futile, like Paul said in the earlier verses, but that none of your labor in following Jesus is in vain. Whether in your vocation whether in your family or your relationships, whether in this church as you work and serve here, whether in your giving or your sacrifice, whether in the way you show hospitalities to your friends and to your neighbors, the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ is at work in you, bringing life to a world in death, and your labor is not in vain. It's productive. It means that the resurrection means that you belong to Jesus in such a way that even in your suffering and the tragedies of your life, he's with you. He's protecting you. He's preserving you. You still belong to him in such a way that even the bad things will work for good. Not even death or tragedy or sorrow can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus and his promise of life and the hope of his resurrection. So the question is, with all that in mind, who will you serve? Will you serve yourself and and seek to gain your life, your own way, and forfeit your soul at the end? Or will you come to Jesus to pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow him? Because he offers you eternal life. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you say in John 10, verse 10, that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And you say, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus, I pray that we would all start to see more than we ever have your abundant life. 
that we'd have faith in your abundant life, that we would live for your abundant life and the power of your resurrection. God, would you use our little church to be the fragrance of life here in Kitsilano? Lord, that we would be the aroma of Christ to those who are perishing, that they would come and see that there is life to be had. Lord, that many would know the wonder and the glory of the salvation that you offer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Then you, they'll ask God uh, to work 